Welcome to Photo Geek Weekly, episode 143, recorded on April 14th of 2021. Uh, this is the Photo Geekery Show, where we discuss the the news, but also the possibilities of the photo industry moving forward. It could be ethics, it could be legal, it could be the latest technology that we are about to have our hands on, and so much more. I'm I'm your host Don Kamarechka, but I am also joined always with a guest host. And uh, this week, I am delighted to bring back uh, Iberian X Perello, uh, a man that uh, I mean, what, what could I say about this guy? He has the calmest voice in photography, and <laughs> in such has wisdom in every single word he says. And I really wish I had this man back on more often. Iberian X, how are you, sir? I'm good, but you're going to have to use that light on my wife the next time I, I get in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you're as calm with the public as you are with your family, that can get very frustrating because I try, uh, you know, a, a bit of uh, a personality here. Uh, we, we've been at home and I know that my wife and I get along very well together when we have been living together pretty well unseparated for over a year now and we can still tolerate each other sometimes she is is blasting off and I'm the calm voice and sometimes it's the opposite uh, and whoever the calm person is in that moment kind of feels like the person that you're fighting against uh, <laughs> because they're just not fighting back right and, yeah. mm -hmm. and so like I've been on both sides of that equation and uh, and so yeah uh, but great to have a nice uh, calm voice on the conversation particularly because some of the topics that we have to talk about today are pivotal right they are really uh, industry changing but honestly some of them are just fun but before we get into all that it has been longer than a year since I've talked to you. So uh, what have you been up to? And how has the last year affected you, uh, your, your business, your psyche, your photography, your creative energy, and just how the heck are you? I'm, I'm good, uh, I, I'm glad to say. Um, the, the past year has had its challenges, um, but we made it through. Um, my wife and I and my sister-in-law caught COVID probably three months ago, but thankfully it was just all minor sort of flu symptoms. My mother-in-law who lives with us and who we care for, um, she didn't get it by some miracle. She's 88 years old. Fantastic. She got tested three separate times. So it was, it was just, we were very grateful for that. And um, like you said, the, the, the past year, um, one of the blessings was that my wife and I got along as well as we did, considering not only COVID, but just the added pressure of taking care of an elderly parent. And, and all of us being in this relatively small house for the uh, time, we certainly had our moments, but I'm grateful for how we got through it, you know, as, as, as a family. Business-wise, I think it was it was kind of interesting because I had started working for the Huntington Library uh, Gardens in San Marino. It's about 20 minutes from where I live, working as a special projects photographer. And there, I, I photograph um, different things in their archive. So letters that were written a couple hundred years ago, artwork, books. 
And um, that provided me a, a certain level of stability that I think was important because despite, despite the pandemic, um, they managed to keep most people there employed and busy. That's great. And, um, uh, that, to, to, to me, especially when you have that archival kind of project, um, that, that could happen at any time, but there's no time like the present. And there's no reason to defer that uh, to, to any future time. If it can be done now, it better be done now. Uh, and I'm glad that you had that gig. Uh, that, that makes me happy. Um, I've had some similar gigs where I've had the opportunity to do product photography for catalogs that uh, had, uh, you know, just they're there. They need to be done presently. And if they're not, then their business suffers. And so, you know, you don't want to defer that and everything moves forward. But uh, at the same time, I was working on a book. And uh, for those listeners that heard the last episode and previous episodes and so on, where I keep mentioning my upcoming book. Um, I, I've heard from the press that uh, the things are, uh, you know, I, it's not that ink's on paper, but uh, that might be in the coming days. It's just that it's, uh, it, it's one of the projects on the docket. It, everything is fully confirmed and, and I'm thrilled for that. So, and you've had a look at that too. Uh, and you gave me a, a wonderful quote. So I, I do appreciate you doing that. And, oh, my pleasure. Uh, it looks beautiful. Oh, thank you. Uh, I look forward to having it in print and having the physical editions out to everybody else. And that's been a, a good winner for me over the last little while. And um, a, a little bit of extra on, on that note, I was just talking to somebody at uh, B&H, and I don't have any U.S. distribution right now. But B and H has uh, has offered to uh, to take on a couple of boxes of books uh, to sell in the U.S. and uh, that's partly in line with um, they're doing a macro photography week that is coming up. I've got a talk going on with them on April 29th, and uh, I, I think it's going to be fun. Uh, it's it's going to be my sort of uh, uh, universe at our feet. Uh, type of talk. That's the name of the book, really. But uh, I've got some new ideas uh, coming to play and and big props to uh, Novoflex, who is the sponsor of my talk. And uh, I've been using their automated focusing rail for, for quite a while. Uh, they loaned one to me and uh, I, I want to make that permanent, even though I already had other equipment in that space. Uh, I, I own a... Uh, well, now the Nova, uh, Novaflex Castel Micro, it's their automated rail, but I, I used to have, well, I still have it. Uh, if anybody wants to buy a very well used, uh, Cognosis stack shot, um, uh, I have one ready, uh, to go because and it has I, all your mojo on it. So it's got all my mojo on it. Actually, you know what? I might keep it because it does do some things a little bit better. It has a rotational platform that I've used with a, a, a Bluetooth remote for some uh, uh, video projects. And I've enjoyed that. Uh, and I might have a call for that again in the future. There's a, you never know who's going to call you. Uh, but I, I, I have felt, uh, for the most part, off my game. You know, th this last year, I've been procedural. I've been doing it. And in the last week, I have been, I, I don't think I've had COVID-19. Uh, I have just been incredibly... Uh, fatigued 
maybe it's just an emotional state, uh, but, but you know, the, the desire to get out of bed just isn't there some days. And uh, well, here we are. This is a reason for me to to be today. And there's some big news uh, in the industry that we've been talking about uh, behind the scenes. Let's bring this. Let's uh, peel back the curtains and talk about the four stories uh, and the picks of the week that we have this week. Pick number one, or sorry, a story number one, rather, um, from Petapixel. And I found this pretty poignant and, and somewhat telling of what the future might hold for photographers. Uh, the title of the article is Wedding Photography Post-Pandemic. Is it time to say goodbye? From Annette uh, Lucina. And yeah, this was of a photographer, uh, and I might paraphrase the article slightly, that realized that wedding photography really wasn't their thing. They were doing it, but it wasn't what their passions were. And you look at weddings that have been downscaled uh, through the pandemic, and you look at stuff that's being planned afterwards, but you also look at photographers that well, if you go a year without proper work in a lot of regions of the world, uh, you can't just uh, put everything aside and wait pensively and, uh, you know, just properly waiting for your clients to come back because you have a mortgage to pay. You have bills to pay in, in most cases. There's rent due. And so photography, I think, during this time, You've had a lot of people that have, uh, you know, for lack of a better word, given up. Uh, they've moved on to something else. They've gotten a job somewhere else. And to pick up that wedding photographer hat again is possible, but it might not come back right away. While others in certain parts of the world have just not stopped. So where do you feel wedding photography is after you've read this article? Where do you feel that you are as a photographer if you could put yourself into somebody's shoes that was doing that kind of work? And as the industry unfolds moving forward, um, is this type of dedicated photographic job going to be as important as it was in the past? Well, as a... Um as a genre of photography, yeah, it's it's still going to be important. It's it's always has been. We've been through a pandemic before, a hundred years ago. We went through two world wars, and people still get hitched, you know, hoping for a lifetime lifetime of love. So this certainly is going to be a part of it. But whether or not you throw your hat in as a professional wedding wedding photographer, either full time or part time, yeah, that is certainly a good good question, and. When I have talked to photographers who've had extended, extensive careers over decades, one of the questions I've sometimes asked them is, how did you deal with the downtimes when there was a recession of some sort or other and business was drying up or not, not available? And the, the photographers who persisted, one of the things that they, they, they did was use this time for uh, redefining themselves either by expanding what they offered as photographers or seeing it as an opportunity to continue to market themselves in preparation for when business did come back. And by staying in touch with, you know, photo editors or former clients and either through like, like uh, newsletters or whatever form of communication was available to them and just kept their name and their presence 
um, on the minds of the people who they had worked, uh, who they'd work, who they had worked for in the past, and who they were hoping to work for in in the future. And that that's one of the more consistent things that I heard from a lot of people who were around for 20, 30, 40, 40 plus years. Now, as you said, there are a lot of people here who, because of the pandemic, are, are really questioning whether or not it is a viable thing for them, especially because of the economic insecurity that it, that it brings up. And if, if they've discovered, like um, the writer in this article said, that it wasn't their passion then I think that was an important discovery. I that, agree. That they were doing it largely to supplement their income or as a way of financing their, you know, their 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 obsession with getting photographic gear, whatever whatever it was. Um, if that's the case, I think that's good news. Because you get to dedicate your time to something that you really love and are passionate about. And I think she was saying that uh, she's doing more like family portraiture. And then that's more in line with what she has an interest in. And I think that's, I think that's great. Um, I have dealt with uh, Bridezilla on at least oh, one occasion. Yeah. And uh, the mother of Bridezilla is, is even worse. And, you know, it, th- there are stressful things in my job that I have done in the past. And, and there's a reason why I generally don't. Uh, shoot wedding uh, photography. I have in in my earliest days, I was a second shooter. So I really wasn't packing on the majority of that stress. Right. And I did that for a good number of other photographers um, just to kind of dip my toes in the water to see what I liked and what I didn't. And I am so glad I, I wasn't, um, serenaded by uh, by the profits of wedding photography. Because if, if, I, if I was looking at those numbers and thinking, you know what, that that's actually a good amount of money. Uh, you know, there's a lot of high stress, but then I would be battling in my life stress versus income. And you cannot lower one without lowering the other. And uh, I'm glad I didn't go that route. And and I'm very sorry for photographers that have to deal with bridezilla. I'm sure you have some absolutely fantastic brides and grooms and families that you deal with. And there's no question that those are some of the highlights of your career. Um, but you also have the opposite and everything in between. And, and we all have to deal with that. But um, I, I feel that, you know, you have sort of a, a cleansing of the system of photographers that tried into this sort of like I almost did um, that really didn't belong there. Like they didn't have their heart in the right place and n- mm-hmm. nothing really told them that except for, okay, well there's still money at the end of the day. So let's just keep this thing going. And that might, uh, I hope, uh, give a higher quality of wedding photographer uh, options available in certain regions. I don't know. Uh, There's going to be a lot of people that fill in the gap too, because if you have a void where wedding photographers are just overbooked by this thing ending and people are clamoring to, you know, uncle Joe and auntie Sue to just take the photos at their wedding, then that's not going to be good enough for most people either. Uh, and, and I've been to weddings where they didn't have an official photographer. Some when I was quite young, where uh, they just put disposable cameras on every table 
and everybody just kind of took the photos of everybody else at the table. And it was kind of a fun thing. In fact, I, it was so memorable, the activity of doing so, that I thought that would be a fun thing to just introduce at weddings. I, I almost did it at my own. I didn't because I realized nobody could figure out the cameras quickly enough. But I was going to grab a bunch of my vintage film cameras, load them up with film, and just stick one on every table. Because, you know, an AE-1 here, uh, you know, uh, a stereo realist there, you know, whatever, you know, you, th you throw those cameras out. And um, I would get back blurry, out of focus, underexposed, overexposed garbage images from every single one of them. And I decided that was probably a bad idea. Uh, so we didn't do that. <laughs> but uh, where, where do you think wedding photography is going to be in, in three, four years? Is it going to make a complete recovery? Is that still going to be a viable business? As you said, it's going to weed a lot of people out um, who were who didn't really leverage the time over the past year to prepare, prepare for the inevitable return of the wedding business. So I think those people who did prepare for that um, are, are ready. And I know photographers yeah. who are order, already booking things. And there are other photographers that are still waiting for things to have been, you know, to, to have transitioned to normality. And at that point, that's a little bit late. Um, but as you said, there's always going to be people out there who, you know, want to make some extra money and, you know, brides and grooms who, you know, don't want to spend that much on photography. So there's always going to be that. But for, for people who are serious about making a living from this, I would hope that they use this time to really think about the business side of being a wedding photographer and not only make the effort to procure business in, in the coming year, but also have a game plan for when uh, there's another downturn in the economy, which is in inevitable. You got to um, play the game, right? Yeah, and you have to it. understand that there's ups and downs in any industry, and some of them can be unpredictable. Unpredict and you just have to say to yourself, all right, well, um, do I have a cushion? You know, do I have that, uh, that, that lower level where if it dips below a certain point and I don't have the income that I need right now. Do I uh, do I pivot to something completely unrelated, or uh, have we planned well enough that we can still keep these fires going and just kind of turn them down to a sort of a match flame level and just wait for the industry to come back and that fire is still ignited the entire way. Yeah, because I lost some opportunities, some which were going to be quite uh, lucrative and they were being negotiated right before COVID hit and then they just, just disappeared. Me too. Um, so, I, I had a big one. I cannot even name the name of the client to my wife. I am sworn to secrecy. <laughs> who this client was and you know we don't have a lot of secrets uh but on the business side of things there are certain things at a certain level that you just have to keep quiet so uh, and that went away uh, but i still have to keep the secret uh so yeah there, there's been some of that all across the board but yeah, when we emerged the other side uh invariably and probably through the entire process we've been looking at gear and there were rumors yesterday when I put the show notes together uh, about an EOS R3. 
And Canon didn't make a, a three series camera in their previous digital series because, well, it would have been called a 3D and uh, it wouldn't have been a stereoscopic camera. So they probably shied away from that moniker as a result of that, although I am a huge fan of stereo 3D content. Uh, I would have loved it and I would have been the only one. But uh, the EOS R3 materialized overnight uh, as a camera that is in development. And I, you know, it was funny because I was suspect of of the design, the uh, pre-release camera uh, or the uh, the leaked screenshot showed a lens that just felt photoshopped on. Like it was maybe the wrong size, the wrong diameter, and it was kind of blocking the logo a little bit. And I just felt from a design, from a branding perspective that that probably wasn't right. Uh, the grip felt just 3D rendered, and maybe it is, but it's still in the resulting uh, release of this camera looks as bad as, uh, you know, I don't want to, I don't want to rain on Canon's parade here. I mean, I, I shot with Canon for years. I know that you are sponsored by Fujifilm. I am sponsored by Panasonic. We have our uh, prospective allegiances per se to have a full format being the, the grip built into a camera. I mean, you're serious business at that point, right? Like you, uh, you have to be dedicated uh, to a clientele that needs a big honking camera. And as a user of a Canon 1DX, a 1D Mark IV and a 1DX Mark II, um, in that order, I had to rent one for a while, but they were all great cameras. A and I'm happy to say that I no longer shoot with them because they were massive things. And I don't need that massive device anymore. The technology has been uh, condensed a little bit. If you're still going to go for a format that requires the built-in grip, and I'm not saying don't add a grip to your camera, uh, many cameras have them as an add-on. Uh, but if you have to have that built in, you better get some oomph for it. You got to have some gravitas within that camera body. And we have nothing but a development announcement and a lot of <laughs> well wishes and, and happiness and rainbows uh, surrounding this. And I'm sure it's going to be great. I, I don't dispute that. But Will it demand whatever the price point is going to be? And is there still a market for that flagship camera? We've talked about this before on the podcast, and I knew that Canon and probably Nikon is going to be developing this uh, super serious camera. Uh, who's going to buy this thing? Well, I think that the first photographers that are likely going to buy it are sports photographers. And, and photographers that really sort of demand the top uh, performance of, of their camera, probably maybe some scientific applications. But the first people I think of are sports photographers uh, who need, you know, the, the best in terms of autofocus, in terms of being able to handle some extreme difficult uh, lighting conditions, especially low light, even when they're using fast glass. Um, they need a uh, responsiveness and for people who are working, um, 
creating editorial content. Um, they need the ability to be able to transmit those files directly from the camera to whatever device they're going to be sing, sending the uh, images to. So it's going to be, I would suspect that it's technologically, it's going to be as much about what happens to the pictures after they're taken as much as what happens when the photographs are taken. So that's who it's designed for. But of course, people who can't afford it will nevertheless get it. And I think one of the things about um, flagship cameras, it's also about sort of um, putting your flag in the ground, right? Sort of trying to say, you know, we've got something, our technology is better than the competition. And that sort of informs um, the perception of the cameras that are, you know, that go, uh, that are beneath it, you know, the advanced amateur, the amateur, the, the, you know, the beginner's cameras. Um, that is sort of the, the, it's the product that's, that creates a statement in terms of where you are in terms of the capabilities of your business to produce amazing technology for picture taking. So um, I think that's what Nikon and Canon are doing uh, by putting these sort of pre-production mock-ups out there. Uh, especially to dissuade people who may be considering jumping ship. Well, that's a good point. That's a very good point. And and especially uh, people that are in the flapping mirror realm still, right? Like they have a traditional DSLR. They're looking at their next camera. Um, and there's a certain level of just being brand agnostic at this point where you know, you can adapt your lenses from one camera body to another across brands. Uh, so well, why stick with what you currently have in terms of a camera, in terms of the brand of the camera, uh, when, when you can jump to something else? And I think that uh, a lot of people are going to Sony, to Panasonic, to Canon, to Nikon, to a brand that their original camera was maybe one of those four, but not the same one that they're going to. And there's a, sort of a, uh, a a shift happening. And I'm not saying that it's all shifting to one person or another, uh, one brand or another, but people are reevaluating where their interests are. And uh, to that end, you know, Canon actually did something that I liked. Uh, and you know, I, I am, I'm so burned by Canon in the past. I'm so jaded by the brand and <laughs> you can listen to previous episodes to understand the exact reasons as to why, but, um, they did one thing that I can give them some credit for is that their upcoming also recently announced 100 millimeter RF macro lens F 2.8. Um, it goes to 1.4 times magnification. And I never really understood why so many macro lenses were stuck at one to one, one X. That's as close as they got. That was a macro lens. And I understand that's the term of macro being life size. Uh, but couldn't you go a little bit past it? 1.1, 1.2, just a little bit closer. I mean, uh, there's always interesting subjects, the closer that you get and can even themselves had their, MPE 65 millimeter 1x to 5x macro lens, which I've loved. And even just today, I was playing around, uh, I've got my hands on a, a NovoFlex bellows system for the Leica L mount, which I can use with my Lumix S1R and the existing glass that I have for that. Uh, and it gets me closer even without a dedicated macro lens up to the extremes. I love that. 
I love to play in those extremes and to make it so that you don't need any extra bits and pieces. You don't need extension tubes, of which I have extension tubes for every system. And I don't even know why they are readily uh, in reach because I'm not using them right now. Nobody can see this, but I'm holding up a set of extension tubes. Uh, but Or close-up filters. There, There's also a close-up filter here in a case because I'm always looking at these things and inspecting them and testing them. If you don't need that, then you don't need that. And I like simplicity in my life these days. Uh, so if I can avoid that, that's great. So thank you, Canon, for avoiding that 1x, 1 to 1 magnification limit, uh, pushing it a little bit farther one way or the other. I really hope future macro lenses from every company, and I should also shout out to Venus Optics, uh, uh, they they have their 100 millimeter macro lens that goes to 2x, uh, and they make that in a variety of different lens mounts, and it's a great lens. Uh, the more people that start to uh, kind of tear down the old guard mentality of photography, I think is better, and we're seeing that right now with some of the announcements from Canon. Uh, I will say too, though that I've had some of my greatest macro shots in the last year done using the high resolution mode in my camera, which I think Fuji also has in their GFX series where you can quadruple the resolution. Of, right. Go from uh, 100 uh, to 400 if you... Yeah, with, yeah. 400, uh, 400 megapixels. No, I, I will state this. I don't know anybody that needs 400 megapixels. I don't know anybody that needs 200 megapixels for that matter. Uh, but the more you have, the more you can throw away. If the quality of the pixels are still good, uh, then you can get into the macro realm by excessively cropping in. And I've done that in some of my setups very successfully. And I've been happy with that. So uh, we actually at the, at the museum, uh, can take advantage of being able to go to 100 to 400 megapixels as a result of when photographing maps, because we have an extensive collection of, of maps in the in the uh, in the library's vaults, and people use them for research. So, being able to create uh, that higher resolution of a file allows people to magnify the image to get into the even the finest detail of of you know these topographical or these um, whatever kind of maps that uh, they're using for for research. And, and and getting back to the other thing in terms of the the one to one. I think they were kind of tied to the idea that um, that a lot of work was done on slide film, you know, and then they wanted to be able to create the one-to-one -one that would match the, you know, 24, 36 proportions. You could always dial the lens into one-to-one. -one. You know, you would have the markers on the barrel, right? You could always go past the marker, but nobody ever, like that was, that was final. Like that was the hundred yeah. percent. Uh, and you know, it just, to think that, okay, well, sometimes you would even want to go in a little bit on that uh, reproduction because the edges don't line up properly. You, you would want to get a little bit closer. Maybe some of the lenses did that, but they didn't state it on the barrel. And that kind of makes sense now um, that they got a little bit closer. But I don't know. It just, it felt, it felt frustrating for a long time, <laughs> uh, especially, and, and I've said this before, that a lot of lenses will say macro and they don't actually get up yeah. to one-to-one. -one. Uh, and that that's, well, I'm not going to bark up that tree today. We've done that before. 
But that high resolution mode, that kind of, that's going to be my segue into the next story, because that's going to make a lot of data, right? That's going to make information, uh, you know, four times the capacity on your memory card. And then if you end up uh, computing that and demosaicing that raw information into TIFF files and saving them at the highest resolution, that's going to take up a lot of space. That's exactly what we do. Yeah. Yeah. A lot more than the original camera memory card would have been storing because as soon as you demosaic data, um, you you have a, an array of of let's say 110 pixels photo sites. Let's call them photo sites that make 100 megapixels. We're just using some round numbers there um, because there's always going to be uh, more photo sites than there are actual pixels because the photo sites collect a color red, green, or blue. And in that process, there's one value associated to every one of those. And the demosaicing process done by raw processors in your camera, when you're creating a JPEG or just viewing the image in general, they're doing that as well. Um, But when you create that super high res TIFF file, every single dot has an R, G, and B value slightly above the bit depth that the original raw file typically would have captured, the amount of data that we are capturing as photographers now is huge. It's bigger than it's ever been. And uh, so uh, an article from DP Review, uh, they said Backblaze, uh, which is a, uh, one of the biggest uh, backup companies out there for storing your data offsite, uh, has revealed their hard drive models with the lowest failure rates in 2020. So I want to ask you two questions, uh, Iberian X. Number one, how do you back up your data? And what do you think about these numbers? Well, in terms of how I back up my data, I have a RAID system that has pretty much all my active files. And then I back up to uh, an array of, of, of singular drives that have different breakdowns of it. So there's a redundancy that exists there. And uh, so I have, what, what do I have down like? Other than the RAID, I have probably four four drives on my desk um, because I had I had the worst case scenario. I had my main drive and my backup fail on me, and it you, was only you can't see my face right now, people. Oh but my god, I, my face is melting. It was a horror, and I did have it on a cloud uh, server, and that was the only thing that saved me. And that was my entire archive of images, my entire <sighs> digital archive. Couldn't believe it. So now it's like I got everything. At least in my in my office, duplicated twice, and then I use Backblaze as sort of a fourth. Um, so you use cloud. Backblaze, you're, yeah, you're I use Backblaze, but I'm, oh, that is just like at the at the very end. That if my main drive and my two backups are completely gone, I have I have an option. But I, uh, I've I, been looking at some of the higher capacity drives. Uh, you know, I, my, my main NAS has 12 terabyte drives in it and I was looking at the numbers and I was thinking that, you know, they actually have some, I I've got Western digital drives and and they're more using, uh, Seagate and Toshiba drives for Mm -hmm. the most part. But uh, I did notice that some of their 12 terabyte drives with the largest number of drive days, which is like time active, I'm guessing, um, their rate of failure is 1% over the entire time. Now that's still a percent, right? Like, and that's not a one percentage of your data. That's like 
the potential that uh, a one percent chance that all of your data disappears. And I've been worrying about going to higher capacity drives that you can get 14, 18, maybe yeah. even 20 terabyte drives. Now uh, I, I've, I've kept a little uh, alert flag on, on, on BNH for the 18 terabyte drives and they've just become in stock in the same brand. But I, I, I cut you off. I apologize. Uh, you were going to say something more about how you store your stuff. Yeah. And yeah, cause um, I've learned from, from working at the Huntington um, that, uh, they pref- they don't want to use drives after four years, you know. So they'll, you know, s- swap them out, you know, copy things over. Just because, um, even though they have built-in redundancies there, it's like if we're doing regular work on these things, um, they don't want to risk us having you know spent weeks working on a project and then have the drive fail and then us having to start all over again. You know, it's yeah. Been, well, it's, been uh, it's a good point because we should all keep that in mind that drives, even though they have not spoiled, uh, need to be cycled, right? Mm-hmm. You know, especially if you bought all of your drives at the same time, the likelihood of there being some manufacturing defect from the same batch, uh, or there being some initial failure from the same batch, which, you know, that's uh, part and parcel to the same thing. But, uh, if they've been used for that same amount of time, that 1% kind of doubles up and triples up and yeah. it's an exponential increase in terms of when things start to fail. And, and I've been using uh, RAID 6 since I uh, redid my, my array. Uh, and so that means I've got two disk failures that can, can save me from catastrophe. But I, I've actually, I haven't gone to Backblaze or Carbonite or any of the other services like that. Uh, Amazon, AWS, and there's so many other places because the cost is so much for the volume of raw data that I have now amassed. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've got around 34 terabytes of data. And a lot of the online services are, you know, they're, they're basically pricing themselves based on how many terabytes you're using uh, per month, per year, et cetera. And, and it would be costing me around three or $400 a month just to have a cloud backup of things because they don't have that unlimited flavor anymore. Uh, because you've got people like me that would abuse it and would take that, <laughs> take that un, uh, unlimited level and say, okay, well, d- does that mean a thousand terabytes? That's great. I'm going to cost you more in hardware than I will ever pay you. Um, and they've cotton wise to that. But uh, some of the four terabyte drives, I, I'm seeing even in here, Seagate has a four terabyte drive from Backblaze that has a 1.4% uh, failure rate where their 12 terabyte and their 10 terabyte drives uh, are a much lower percentage. And it's interesting to think about how this all works out. But um, when you almost lost all of your data, it's almost like I want to ask you how many pairs of pants did you have to change into because like that that that, that is our worst nightmare yeah. of photographers of losing our life's work uh, in, in in that area, um, and, and that's not to say that I don't have backups. All of my finished yeah. edited work is on like portable drives that are four or five terabytes in size, and everything is there, including all of my tax documents and invoices. And like, that's all constantly, mm-hmm. uh, you know, available on a second source. But 
that raw data, I am having a really hard time finding a second location for without doubling my money. Yeah. I, one of the things that I'm, I'm doing is going through my entire archive and because, you know, I'm one of those photographers who doesn't throw anything away. So my hard drives are filled with a lot of just bad, bad photographs that I'm never used for anything. So I, I'm planning to go through the work, the, the, the work that I think is the best representation of my body of work. I'll get like one of those portable drives and back it up and then take it out of the house. You know, so if, if something catastrophic does happen and I lose everything here, um, I, I, I won't be so much inclined to have to pay Backblaze or whoever else thousands of dollars to download everything. I'll just like, I take the loss and, and know that, that the core body of my work still exists. Um, and that's not going to take hundreds of terabytes, you know, yeah. um, you know, it, it'll, it'll probably be less than one terabyte if, if, if even, if even that, but just as, as a practical sort of day to day, um, having that redundancy and not just having one backup, but having two, I think I've learned the hard way that it's absolutely essential because I don't know how many drives since I've owned a computer I've had failed probably six, eight, you know, yeah, and, and I, I've had some memory cards fail, uh, not just by me, but by students of mine. And and they come to me and they say, well, I, I haven't offloaded the images from this card in you know six months. And I've been to trips to oh. Costa Rica to photograph birds and to the Bahamas. And it was in an underwater camera and like all of these wonderful in environmental situational shots that are hard to recreate. Uh, and they're gone because the memory card just gave up the ghost and they didn't bother to download them at all. And okay, number one, that's your problem. But number two uh, is keep things in at least two places. So that's where I have my finished work always in multiple locations. Uh, and that's why I like using websites that uh, really uh, do good at displaying the work. And when I upload uh, on some services like Flickr, um, Flickr does a really good job displaying stuff, but it also lets me download the original as a content creator. Uh, and I can pay a nominal fee for the pro account to have all access to all of their bells and whistles. And if I upload images that are 3000 to 4000 pixels across horizontally, uh, or, or whatever the longest side uh, is, then then I have, I've got a pretty good representation of my work. If everything else were to disappear, mm -hmm. I at least still have that for, I can't remember what they're charging me for 10 or $15 a month. But you know, at, at that rate, that's, that's great, especially because they have the entire service of, uh, you know, the, the whole social platform around it. Uh, but I, as a photographer have the ability to say, okay, well, you know, I've uploaded my highest resolution images. If somebody were to steal that from me, um, well, I have three things to say about that. Number one, you, if you're willing to steal it, you wouldn't have bought it from me. Like you wouldn't have bought a print from me to begin with. And so I haven't really lost a sale in that perspective. Mm -hmm. Number two, what you've done is something is illegal and I can go after you with my lawyers if, uh, and, and a lot of lawyers will work on contingency, especially if it ends up being used in a commercial context. But number three is really one of the important ones is that I did not 
um, I did not hurt the people that were honest and just enjoying my work by uploading a low resolution image with a, uh, a big watermark across it uh, that just destroyed the viewing experience of things. And so anybody that legitimately enjoyed my work uh, that wasn't willing to rip me off in any way, they still got to enjoy it on that Flickr platform. And so, yeah, I, I use all of these different methods, I suppose, and uh, and we carry that forward. And I'm glad that you know that uh, you know, SmugMug bought Flickr because uh, Yahoo is kind of circling the drain right now. They just announced that Yahoo Answers is now being discontinued in a couple of days, about oh, a week wow. from from the recording of this. And uh, so, yeah, Flickr was a Yahoo property; it is no more, and I'm very glad that it is not. Um, so uh, there we have it. Let's get into something uh, quite obscure, eccentric in photography, which I just absolutely love. Uh, but before we do, where can we find you online? Uh, Iberian X Perillo and The Candid Frame. Uh, where are these things located? Um, and what all, are they? All one place. They, they can either go to IbarianX.net or TheCandidFrame.com. And there they'll find practically all the things that I do from my, my own photography, the podcast workshops, books, et cetera, and et cetera. And also there's a link there to uh, my Instagram account where I'm, I'm pretty, that's where my most up-to-date work is. I just updated some of the images on the website about a month ago, but if people want to keep current with me, they can check it, check me out on Instagram. And, uh, I do have a, a presence on Twitter um, not as active on there as with other platforms, but, uh, yeah, people should be able to find me because if they just put in my name, they're only going to find me. How many syllables is your name? Five. Five. Now that that's a lot of syllables for a is name. Right? I've been meaning to ask you this. Yeah. Five. I've been meaning to ask you this for a long time. People that have many multiple syllable names often have a nickname, a short form, <sighs> if you will. Is there one for you? I have not heard it spoken. There are several for me, but I don't disclose them. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Fair enough. Uh, all right. Moving on to the final story uh, from DP Review. This 3D printed lens let y lets you create, quote, wiggle grams. Iberian X, uh, what is a wiggle gram? Well, from just watching that video, it looks like it's a, an image that takes on the appearance as if it's 3D. That this that this custom, you know, printed lens takes three frames, and that when you bring it into Lightroom or Photoshop, uh, you're able to make a singular image that has a sense of depth to it. So it's when you look at it, it wiggles. So and there are versions uh, that have two lenses. And in fact, I own one of them. Uh, I have a, uh, a very special lens that was developed by a company in the Netherlands um, that made it for a red epic as a stereoscopic 3D macro lens. And it used optics. The optics are from a uh, the, the Panasonic 12 what is it 12.5 millimeter f12 3d lens for the micro four-thirds systems um 
they just took the optical components out of there, threw them into a different format with a different flange distance and different focusing mechanism, etc. And they built something around that. They, I think they've only made six of these and I'm holding one of them in my hands. It's covered in dust because it's been on my desk for a while. I should take better care of it. Um, but a lot of these things are niche, right? Like they, I, I looked it up and, uh, the designer and maker, George, um, uh, Moua, I, I, I might be pronouncing his name wrong. Vowels strung together, escape me. But if you can 3d print a lens and yeah, you're not going to 3d print the optics, obviously you're going to find them from another source, like the lens that I was just holding up. Uh, but if you can 3d print a lens, then that really opens up the opportunities of uh, sort of basement inventors, right? Garage inventors, the people that uh, that are trying to create something innovative. But what tools do you have available? You have a 3D printer, which have become incredibly affordable. And the lenses that I'm looking at that have been created by this, you can see all of the print lines across it. It's not an expensive 3D printer um, that was being used to create these things. And that just, it, it makes me feel free, right? You, you look at the type of equipment that people can create on their own with an idea without yeah. a million dollar R&D budget uh, to, to, to make it real. And yeah, you got to source the optics from somewhere. So good luck with that. Obviously, I've given you a perfect example. And they kind of look like the exact same focal length and size of optics. So they might be the same ones. I'm not sure because they're pretty readily available. Um, wiggle grams have been a thing for a while, you know, you, which is basically an animated uh, GIF that will uh, move from side to side. And you can kind of see the 3D effect uh, as it is on a 2D display. But we are, we are 3D creatures. We have stereoscopic vision. So having at least two lenses to see things uh, can be an advantage. And the Wigglegrams will show you something fun and novel. Uh, there's so many more possibilities to evolve within this technology, including uh, making lenticular prints, which I've done a number of, uh, where you have a print with a prism on the front of it that you, if you look at it from different angles, you will see it from different angles. And it can be done either with different views of the same subject or by motion. And, and I've always loved that concept of just animating something or seeing a, a greater depth to something. And photography allows us to do that, although very, very few people ever explore that. Now, I guess my question here is, uh, if this was commercially available, would you buy one? No. Yeah, it's no. not something that really piques my <laughs> piques my okay. my interest. I think what's interesting ab about that technology and a lot of what I'm seeing in terms of third party manufacturers of, of 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 equipment and how people are modifying their existing cameras to accept them is the idea that that, that people are really interested in optics that are not pristine and perfect. They're looking for a look that they don't get from the lenses they buy from the typical manufacturer. And I yeah, think that exactly. and I think that that's, that's interesting. And I think this particular technology, though I didn't read much beyond uh, the link in the article, it seems to be really conducive to how people are experiencing photographs today, which is on their phone or tablets. Um, 
like you said before, you could make lenticular prints, but there was a certain degree of work involved in being able to be able to do that. And now, oh, yeah. even though you have to go through Photoshop in order to c- complete the photograph, uh, in terms of being able to share that, that imagery, uh, it's a lot more accessible than it was in the past. So I think, you know, to that degree, it's a technology that is seems to be well served by the way we consume images today. It, it is, uh, uh, while at the same time, uh, it opens up um, a, and I, I will say a very welcomed hipster mentality, where if you want to uh, take photography all the way back to the 1800s and, and look at images through an antique stereoscope, of which the oldest that I own is from 1867, um, and they they get older than that, you know. Stereoscopic 3D existed before uh, photography. It, it, people were drawing in 3D with mirrors and optics, uh, you know, a couple of years before photography kind of came to the forefront. So, um, you know, you can take something and use modern technology to display it and understand it, but at the same time, you know, it, it's I, I don't want to say it's just. It's not as useless as typing out your manuscript on a typewriter. That legitimately is useless. Uh, <laughs> I mean, convert your typewriter to digital if you want that feel. Uh, I mean, use mechanical keys on a keyboard if you want that. But, uh, uh, but photography can be experienced in many ways that we have forgotten about. And, and I enjoy that. I, I, I find a value in, in that entire process. And, and I see something like this that I, I want to talk to the guy that made this, and I want one. I want two of them. Uh, I, I want one with two lenses and one with three lenses, and I don't know if they'll even work for me because when I modified my Leica Stemar lens, which is from 1954, and, and redesigned the septum that kind of sits on the back of it to protrude into the lens, um, I, I bricked my camera. I, I broke wow. the shutter button or uh, not the shutter button, but the shutter itself, uh, because I made it go too far back and then I had to redesign it, uh, so that I did not mangle my shutter again. And, uh, and so I, I, I look at these things and I think, okay, this is really cool. Uh, make sure you don't break a camera in the process, but, uh, if that can be commercially available, even at a very low level, there could be a cottage industry that evolved from that because this Leica lens that I have is from 1954. And some company should come along and make something as beautiful and brilliant as this. If they if there was a Kickstarter campaign that would charge me $1,000 for one, I would probably begrudgingly give my <laughs> money to it because I've already been indoctrinated into that, uh, into that area. But, uh, the fact is you can do that now. You can have an upstart company create a product and say, okay, well, this is going to work. Or maybe it won't because what was, uh, was it Trigger Trap? That was the company that, uh, that was going to come up with a, a new product that was, uh, I think was powered by an Arduino and it was uh, really uh, a device that was going to transform the ability to camera trap and uh, and uh, re- re- uh, release your shutter button based on bulb ramping and whatever you wanted to imagine. They went out of business because they couldn't manufacture it affordably. Uh, yeah. And they were also sued by Red uh, 
because their original version of their Kickstarter campaign used the name Red in it, and they had to settle. And I don't know if if Haya even listens to this podcast anymore. Uh, we recorded an episode of Inside the Lens uh, with the CEO uh, of Trigger Trap at the time, and he couldn't mention the name uh, because of the non-disclosure agreement, whatever, but it was still in the URL of the Kickstarter campaign. The word red was still there and they got just, you know, just that, that was like the shovel that was digging the hole that they are now in. Uh, Partly because, you know, the photography industry is, rather litigious uh in well you know patent lawsuits all it's not just photography it's technology in general uh kind of goes down that road but hopefully somebody like this is making them without violating any patents and george i'm going to reach out to you and i'm going to see if i can get my hands on some of these things because they just look fun well i look forward Uh, to seeing what you do with it yeah, yeah, I and and especially because cameras are becoming higher and higher resolution. You got a 40, 60, 100 megapixel camera these days. Uh if if you throw one of these lenses on, each one of them is a third of that. And that's still like 20 megapixels albeit vertical. I get that. But it's still more than I had ever used on my beginning cameras that started my professional career and built the entire body of work that is the foundation of that career. Uh, And I can go back to that in a heartbeat in terms of resolution, especially if there's an added dimension. All right. We've gone through the stories. Barry and X, thank you for making it through that gauntlet with me. My pleasure. It's always good to Uh, talk with you. Yeah, but we got our picks of the week. I don't know if you've got anything uh, handy. It could be uh, oh, a piece yeah. of gear, an app, a gadget, uh, a service, uh, or a recommendation of a book or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. I just got a book in. Um, and as as I listen to the dead silence, Iberian X is, is getting up to, to pull up a book. town pretty, even though it looks reversed on on your on your screen. oh i see it fine yeah that's pretty and i mean it it's is a, a, pro- a beautiful face of, of an older chinese woman on the cover yeah and uh you know i i don't know what's going to be in this book a very next but i'm gonna just i'm gonna state that uh, when i see old people well done old people photos like i just saw on the cover of that book yeah they have so much dignity like it's just their their age and their life is on their face. And that doesn't mean it's a bad thing. Mm-hmm. It means that I can see stories without hearing them. And I've just always found that fascinating. And, and I'm maybe I'm making up those stories in my own mind. Um, no, it's definitely there. Uh, they were these, these two, um, um, two women, one who's a writer, one who's a photographer. And they visited Chinatowns throughout the country. Uh, talking to stylist seniors who lived in these Chinatown communities. So would, they would make their their portraits, but they would also, when possible, interview them to find out their stories. And I'm going to be interviewing them in a couple of weeks, but just casually going through the, the book, the images are just wonderful. Um, there's so much joy, beauty, genuineness with each page turn. Um I'm really looking forward to to talking with him. And uh, 
yeah, it, 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 I, I can't recommend a book highly enough that does that for me. So uh, where uh, where can we find that book? Uh, it's probably available if you can go to ChinatownPretty.com, I think. But otherwise, it should be available through anywhere people buy books. So if you're Amazon or if you're a brick-and-mortar uh, bookstore near you, you should be able to place, uh, place an order. I think it's been available. Uh, it was released late last year, but because of the pandemic, they weren't able to do the usual promotion. Uh, but they've been doing some um, with – this, you know, in 2021. And that's how I find, found out about them. Awesome. Thank you very much for that recommendation. And, uh, uh and my pick of the week is, uh, well, I, I kind of lied why the extension tubes were on my desk earlier because they were my pick of the week. And that's why I had them handy. There are a number of companies that make extension tubes, including your, uh, proper first party manufacturer, your Canon and Nikon, et cetera. Um, they don't do a better job than others. Uh, they either work or they don't. And uh, these ones that I have in my hand, they do. And they're from ProMaster. And I had recommended a close-up filter from the same brand recently because uh, it also worked, and it worked really well. Having no optics to increase your magnification for macro is an advantage because there's nothing to, uh, you know, no extra reflection layers, and, and there's nothing that's going to uh, muddy up the optical formula that was already hopefully perfected by the engineers to begin with. Um, but when you have a set of extension tubes, there's a couple of things to keep in mind, and I've seen some really bad engineered ones. Some, they just don't connect together right these ones they're a really solid connection and no matter how hard i twist back and forth this doesn't disconnect uh and i've seen some of these things actually fall apart uh as as customers uh, as 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 students had uh, been in workshops but none from this brand and they fit together really nicely. But they also have baffling in the side and that's a hard thing to really identify and what is baffling? Well, it is ridges along uh, the interior of a lens. You've seen it. It's those concentric rings of ridges inside of pretty well every lens that you own that stops light from bending around. Um, it absorbs light. It otherwise prevents it from becoming glare and flare and other detrimental in ingredients in images. And uh, these ProMaster uh, extension tubes, they've got them and they, 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 they do it really well. I've seen some inexpensive, uh, extension tube sets that do not have that. It's the reason why I'm mentioning it because it's not just that they work and it's just that it's a hollow tube. It's that there is some engineering involved to make it work very, very well. And, uh, it's $110 for a set of three extension tubes. And that's for the, the Canon set that I have here. But, I mean, it, they have them for various brands. You don't have to get one specific to that. So, well, that yeah, $110. Like a, that sounds like a reasonable investment. Um, I've spent far more on photo accessories that do far less. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Same here. Uh, so, yeah, to, to have a set of extension tubes that behave that well for me, uh, I recommend. And I want to thank Hunt's Photo. Uh, for sending them to me just to, to try them out because uh, I, I've got some stuff ongoing with them as well. I, I actually have a, a pretty good relationship with a lot of the U.S. camera retailers. And 
a lot of them carry different brands and different products from one another. Uh, I, I feel like as a consumer, there has been no better time to be a photographer. Uh, like if, if you're the kind of person that has to say, all right, well, uh, I want to take a picture of something. I need some gear. Uh, what, what, what do I need? Well, there's more people that are willing to help you not sell you the gear, but figure out the gear that you need to buy today than there has ever been before. People are not just trying to sell you what they have in store. And, and I worked retail for a long time, uh, camera retail, where one of the, the guidelines was sell what you've got, right? And so if somebody comes in and you've got some product that is vaguely of interest to them, you were pushed to sell it because yeah. it's what they could walk away with that day. Um, but especially when you have large online retail warehouses of stuff and people behind the scenes that understand exactly what it is that you need. Uh, when you get into niche products like extension tubes, uh, you get people that aren't going to sell you the, the really crummy ones. They're going to sell you the good stuff because that's what they have. And the good stuff doesn't mean that it costs $300 for one it can be 110 for three and, uh, and, and there you go. So that is my pick of the week. Iberian X, thank you for being here for another episode of photo geek weekly. Again, before we hang up, where can people find you online? They can go to candidframe.com and there they'll find, they'll find an interview that I've done with you. Uh, yeah, we've got to do another one at some point. Yeah. I think that, uh, that there's more musings and stories to carry on that conversation. Absolutely. But as of now, there was one that we did a few years ago. And uh, if you've been listening to this podcast since then, it'll be fun for you to go back <laughs> and listen to that old one. Because I almost sound like a different person then to now. Because uh, the world changes. We all change. We are all creatives. Uh, we all want the next greatest uh, image. And to that end, still for now. I, I know that some of us have had our vaccines, but the majority of us, at least here where I am, have not. So for now, it is still time to stay in and shoot.